You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks for joining us wherever you may be. Perhaps you're in the car, on a bus heading to work. Maybe you're on a long flight getting some priceless alone time. Wherever you are, welcome. My name's David Frizzell and in this episode... We're going to chat about something very close to my heart, communication. Left dangling, it's a tired, well-worn topic, but we're not going to do it that way, of course. My guest for this conversation is Jen Jackson. Jen and I share a passion, a passion for what communication could be, powerful, engaging, fun, and fresh. And we share a passionate dislike for what communication within organization so often becomes rushed, boring, formal, jargon-laden rubbish. Jen, in her beautifully fresh and engaging way, talks us through some of the things we can do to identify rubbish communication and rethink it, do it justice, create comms that makes people stand up and take notice, makes them want to be involved. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jen Jackson. Jen Jackson, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hi. Jen, you are a communication expert, so I just want to let you know that expectations of you on this show are really high. You can't Mm. write a book about being a fabulous communicator without showing us your stuff during this podcast. Are you okay with that type of scrutiny? Yeah, talk about setting ourselves up. Um, We didn't really think about that when we came up with the title either. Do you get a little bit of that now that you've published the book and that's the type of work that you do? Do you feel the expectation on you to be a fabulous communicator all the time? Yeah. And as I'm sure a lot of people can attest to that plumber with the leaky tap, all of that syndrome bloody shocking at a lot of it most of the time. So Uh, I don't believe improving for a second. Hey, Jen, your book is called How to Speak Human. It's a, it's a nice, catchy title, but it made me wonder if there's a bit of an instruction guide on how to speak human, how to relate with each other as human beings, mm. given that premise, what is it that we currently do? What language do most of us currently speak if it's not human? That's a great question. I think what we could be speaking right now is a, a heady mix of jargon and professionalism and all the things that are kind of getting in the way from those nice, you know, good human connections. How to Speak Human, the concept from the book really came from the conversations that we'd been having with clients and our leaders from different organizations all around the world. And whether or not it was like a a business of 500 employees or a large organization of 500,000 employees. And and regardless of the industry, leaders would have the same issues when it came to communicating with their people and with their teams. And, you know, so we'd be having conversations like, you know, I've got a great idea and I've got this great initiative or I've got a great program, but it's just not cutting through and I can't get people to, you know, get on board or understand what I'm saying. Or, you know, sometimes I'll have a convo and it feels like I am speaking another language and, and I, I feel like we're on the same page, but then I'll turn around and then turn back and they're doing the exact opposite of what <laughs> we just spoke about. Or, you know, it might be that, you know, leaders feel like sometimes they're banging their heads against a wall trying to get people to 
to care about things as much as they're caring. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's a clear cut answer in we've all been speaking, you know, Android or dog other than human, um, yeah. but there's definitely some things that are getting in the way. It's as if it's one of these keystone skills, and, and that's to state the obvious. We can have the most fabulous strategy. We can hire wonderful talent. We can give people the best tools at work and processes, lay down some processes. But if all around that, we are communicating with each other in a really poor way, and there's lots of different types of poor communication, then all mm-hmm. of that fabulous infrastructure that we're laying down can go to waste to a large extent because of this really basic skill. As you were talking then, it kind of reminded me of my early days as a young football player. And I, I, before you ask, I was, I was a very average football player. I didn't <laughs> play at any amazing level. But we used to, at training, plan all these fabulous moves. And I'm talking rugby and rugby league. We're at the back line. We do these passes, cutout passes, you know, wraparounds and all these kind of things. But then you know what would happen in the game? We'd drop the ball. And you can't do any of those fabulous moves if Mm -hmm. you don't have the ball and if you're continually handing the ball over. That's a bit like communication in organizations. We can have great intent, great strategy, great enthusiasm and energy. But if people get into meetings or write emails or just talk with each other in a Mm -hmm. way that is confusing and inefficient, it's a bit like us dropping the ball when I was trying to be a rugby league player. You mentioned in their jargon, and there is a part in your book that made me laugh out loud. I'm going to read it. I don't often read from books on this show, but I'm going to read this part. I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. It's in the chapter titled Words. And this is someone in a meeting and they say this, we need to think outside the box. If we're really going to embrace blue sky thinking, we need to reach into the bottom drawer for a competitive advantage. I'm sure this is already on everyone's radar There are lots of moving parts, but with a robust strategy, we'll innovate a solution. It's just going to take some heavy lifting. That makes me want to cry and laugh and vomit all at the same time because it's funny. It's a really well-structured critique, a, a black mirror, but it's so real. How many meetings have you been in where people talk like that? And even worse, where people kind of nod and smile as if, yeah, that's an okay way to communicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many. And and I actually take a lot of delight in just going, hey, um, can we just back that up there? Because I understood zero of what just went down. And I have a suspicion there might be a few other people at the table feeling the same thing. But it is, I think, I think jargon gets used for a number of reasons. And one is it can just become so ingrained that it's just habituated into the way that you know organizations do speak, but it's at the risk of massive exclusion unless you are in that inner circle. So as jargon and words, it, it can really be cohesive in in helping a company really feel like they all are on the same team because they all understand it. But you also got to be really careful when you're bringing new people into the fold that are you onboarding them and inducting them into what that jargon is. If it's useful jargon, otherwise get rid of it and just speak plain human. <laughs> Do you think the jargon has a bit of a life cycle where some of those things, they're almost mini metaphors, a lot of the things that were in there. And at first, the first person to utter those, it was probably Mm. quite a useful thing to say. And it probably created a bunch of imagery for those who are listening. But then it takes on this kind of early adopters pick it up and they, you know, with this cool. And then all of a sudden everyone's using it. 
to the point mm. where, and at, at some point in the life cycle of this jargon, it loses all meaning and it just becomes almost a mask of people who either haven't got anything to say or they don't have the words to express the ideas that are flowing through their head. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And I was thinking about this this afternoon, um, funnily enough, just that concept of abstract versus concrete language. And you're right, mm. when it is something like blue sky thinking, when it was first said, it's it's a really nice different way of thinking mm. about what our long-term you know, strategy is. But now it has kind of gone beyond that and it is so abstract that it's it's not useful anymore. So, what's the new way of talking about it? And you know, you can think recently of some of the the latest buzzwords that have popped up, and it's all about you know frameworks now, and all of the all the different things that that you hear now. And you go, yeah, you're right. It is stuff that has a shelf life. Good to be mindful of that, and then to kick it to the curb when the time when the time comes. Just some plain old speak, and and everyone who's listening right now is sitting in their car or on the bus and thinking about all of the cliche jargons that get sprayed around at work. And if we're honest, maybe we use some of them as well. It's This is going to be a nice little catalyst for me to do a bit of a stock take over the next few weeks and just notice what comes out of my mouth. I might even ask a few trusted colleagues to pick me up when I'm doing <laughs> jargon talk because it's not good enough. It's it's very sloppy and lazy and, and a yeah. bit mediocre. Hey, we're going to um, get very soon to the the 11 strategies or ideas that you've presented in your book about how we can really tidy up and and make our, our communication stronger and more powerful. But to give it a little bit of meat, I, I do want to dwell on what we do badly for a little bit longer. We started with jargon. You mentioned it early and it, and it took me to that passage in your book. What are some of the other gigantic sins that you see in the work that you do in organizations that, that most of us are committing at some point that are detracting mm. from our power as a communicator? Yeah, I think one of the big things that's happening at the moment is because we're at this kind of strange time where we've got you know maybe three, four, five generations working side by side that, you know, this is this is fairly substantial now because, you know, once upon a time it probably wasn't such a problem. But as you and I know, like, and everyone knows that within the last 50 years, the changes to how we communicate have been really substantial. And so, when you bring those preferences and ideas and ideologies in to the workplace, you've got all of these you know, competing and different ways that we want to receive and communicate. So, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the commonality and what, what makes us the same rather than different? And, and to us, that's the human factor, of course. But one of the big mistakes that we see being made is that we're not respecting that and we're not allowing the influences of, you know, outside the walls of organizations to filter inside and then moving at the same pace as what the rest of the world is when it comes to how we communicate. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You raise that very good point in your book, and when you, you've stated in your book that there are up to five generations working together at a time, I was kind of blown away by that, and I thought it through, and I guess, well, you're probably right. So you, mm -hmm. boomers are hanging on longer because they're living longer, because mm -hmm. 
They uh, a lot of boomers lost a lot of money in the GFC and have have stuck around and work longer. We know that the the retirement age has been bumped up to sixty seven. I think it is now, and there was talk of it being at seventy. So the boomers are hanging around longer. We've got people like me. I'm a Gen X. I was born in nineteen seventy five. So I'm smack bang in the middle of Gen X. And then there's Gen Y. And then there's the generation that come after Gen Y, which is Gen X. So I guess that's four generations. And you can – what's the other one? Gen Z. Gen Z. Gen Z. Well, who are Gen Zs? Gen Zs, I don't even know of these people. Who who are they? (laughs) That's after the millennials. Okay, right. So – if you put all these things in a workplace and the different language and the way of speaking that comes with that, is it necessarily a bad thing or can it just be a really nice way in a, in a healthy, functional workplace that we learn a little bit as you know, a bit of a new dialogue from the different generations? Yeah, absolutely. If we're open to it, <laughs> I think that's the, yeah. the key there. So, so typically what happens is, you know, because of the age factor and the experience factor, we end up with people in leadership roles who are very accustomed to their own way of communicating, but then they fail to recognize that, you know, say your Gen Ys who are coming up through are very connected and fine with tech, that their preference for something like video is, you know, 80% preference for video as opposed to somebody who still might be sitting in the boomer or the other end of Gen X where they still want you know, more written and more report-based communication. So it's kind of putting aside your own preferences and being quite strategic in understanding what your team likes, what your whole workforce is like, and and then catering to those needs because that's going to shortcut straight to, you know, shortcut straight to the attention factor rather than making people, you know, move outside of what they are really comfortable with. And there's got to be give and take on both sides, but I think there's also some quick wins to be had. Is it okay as a millennial or a Gen Z just to let it all hang out in terms of the dialogue that you would use with your friends, the the slang or the the language of your era, or is it beholden mm. on people to come to a professional kind of language that is kind of ambivalent to your age? Is is there a professional language that we must find regardless of the generation that we fit into? Oh, I see. You've said that trigger word for me, professionalism. I, uh, you know, what is professional? It's belonging to a profession. So I think what it comes back to is, is it appropriate? And then that's only something that can be determined based on the culture of your company and then, and the industry, I guess, at large, but then how you're differentiating yourself within that industry. So yeah, I find professionalism can be a bit of a facade, just like jargon can be for um, mm. not letting yourself be yourself. And there's there's a really big shame in that. And and you see a lot of yeah you know, crusties <laughs> getting up in arms about about people being too familiar at work and you know not leaving the emotions at the door and and bringing in their LOLs and things. But you know that's where we're at. So. I don't think it's a matter of being inappropriate. It's just as an organization determining you know, what is appropriate and then building that into your norms and rituals and, and style guides and things. So, Jen, before I, we dive into the solutions, I just want to dwell on this because it's kind of fascinating to me. It's such a broad topic and you made mm. so many good points in your book. I, I want to talk about two more things before we get to your favorite fixes to these problems. First of all, I want to acknowledge the fantastic point that you made there about this mythical professional language. The 
what I took from that is is there's no such thing as the professional language that just sort of creates this elitist club. The real mm. question is the way you're communicating, is it appropriate? Is it respectful? And is it appropriate? And and whether you're using the language of a 20-year-old or the language of a 60-year-old, that doesn't matter. There's there's just, is it okay? Does Is it effective in the way you're communicating? And is it respectful and, and appropriate? So I like that. That's mm. great. Now, you made the really great point in your book that we on the, and I was doing it on the bus. So I was reading your book on the bus after I had read Twitter and liked stuff on Facebook and and done all my social media things. You made the very good point that we all do that. Most people of of all generations, yet then we go to work and we communicate in long, boring emails that are just this block of text. We send out newsletters to update people. We write endless 12 font text on PowerPoint slides and send that around as if that's an okay way to communicate. There's a real gulf there, isn't it? In the way that we have evolved as communicators in our Mm. real life that doesn't seem to have kept up in the professional scene. Yeah. And I think our education system's got a lot to answer for when it comes to that. Not that I want to start loading anything else on the poor buggers, but (laughs) it is, you know, like I vaguely remember in grade three getting a rap over the knuckles with a ruler because I was speaking in the first person rather than the third person. And, mm. and you know, that gets ingrained into you from a really young age. And then you go to university and you get marked down for not having enough data and research and, and keeping your own thoughts and opinions out of it because that's, you know, not okay. And mm. then you end up you know, getting a job and you get indoctrinated into the way that we do things around here, which has traditionally been long form and long reports and PowerPoint slides with 80,000 bullet points on it. And it just becomes the norm. And mm. <laughs> that's that. Mm. But I think it's, yeah, a, a lot of you know, forward thinking organizations now are kind of taking stock of that. And recently, just come back from doing some work with Amazon and they've got a no PowerPoint rule, which was very exciting. Um, yeah. But what's interesting is that they've actually gone to these five-page memos. So, for their weekly reporting and their quarterly reporting, every meeting gets met with a, a five-page memo that everybody reads silently and in depth, and then they have their conversation. So, it's to promote really deep thinking rather than the the quick, glossy, snappy, here's the headlines, walk away. Yeah. So, it's it's kind of working out in different ways. So what are the you, you just mentioned Amazon there and and the no mm. PowerPoint rule that's great. What are the forward thinking organizations doing well in terms of tapping into the way that we like to communicate in our real lives or the rest of our life as opposed to the boring old 12 font PowerPoint slides what what do organizations do well I've I've seen so many organizations try and fail to get people to use Yammer because it's so tantalizingly mm. like Facebook Yet, of course, it's not as interesting as Facebook because what's going on there is work stuff and people are much less likely to get on there and like and comment and reply and post their own sort of thing. So what are organizations doing well in that space? Yeah, it's a hard slog to introduce a whole new platform and then go through mm. the whole change management to to get people to get on board with it. And the ones that do manage to get there, I, I'm not even sure what their magic formula has been. Some of the times it's the early adopters and the champions that make enough noise to make it happen, but often it all falls over yeah. before it gets there. So what are they doing well? I think 
again, it comes back to the identifying the the right message for the right medium across the right channel and spending more time and being more purposeful about their communication. And, you know, there's there's different ways of going about that, but I think it starts with having a really strong internal communication strategy. Most of the time, organizations will have a great external communication strategy and they'll have uh, really strict branding guidelines that will talk about tone mm. of voice and and colors and fonts yeah. and all the ways of communicating externally. But then they just slap that across the internal guidelines mm. as well. And there's been yeah. no amendments taken for the fact where you, you're talking to a completely different audience, a completely different yeah. market who within mm. a matter of days or weeks is going to be habituated to the way things are done and, and they don't open it up enough to have enough anticipation or surprise or curiosity or different ways of doing things that keep people engaged and and interested. So, yeah, I think to answer it succinctly, it would be good organizations are reducing the stranglehold on the internal style guides. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because they are, a, like you say, a stranglehold, a pair of handcuffs. Hey, when you mentioned your your faint memory of grade three being told to, to speak in the third person rather than the first, it made me think of LinkedIn profiles. Now, I'm about to offend a whole bunch of people who are listening, but I just want to give you a tip. People know that you've written your own LinkedIn profile. So when you talk about yourself in the third person, Daryl loves to do this. Everyone knows that Daryl has written that. I've never understood why people do that. Why don't we just write in the first person? What about your LinkedIn profile, Jen? Have you written it in the first or the third person? Oh, heavens, I hope it's the first. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it is the first. It would be very unlike me unless I was doing it sarcastically for some reason. No, I'm yeah. sure it's the first. But that just reminds me of when you first start your own business and you try and be bigger than you actually are and you talk about yes. you know us and yeah. the team and it's like you yeah. in your bedroom, yeah. <laughs> in your pajamas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which everyone knows or most people know anyway. And that- Everyone knows. <laughs> that is the funny thing about LinkedIn. But I don't think people are doing it to be deceptive, I guess. I just guess they're copying what they see. Because if you were to read mm. 10 LinkedIn profiles, I'm guessing seven or eight of them would be written in the third person. Mm, definitely. And it still is this whole notion that it comes across as more professional. Mm. We've got to get rid of it. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, now let's get to the good stuff. Let's spend the rest of our time together covering maybe the two or three of your favorite strategies that you've presented in the book. What is it that we can all do starting tomorrow that will make us more human and effective and relatable and influential in the way that we communicate? And why? Oh, I kind of want to ask you what your favorite chapters were. Look, I love words. I loved mm-hmm. when you were talking about the power of words. And I, I read that piece from that chapter. I think it's this, the, oh, it's, it's down the bottom. It's the ninth or the, or the eighth of your suggestions there, because I'm always so critical in my own mind, and I, I don't often verbalize it, of people who do speak in jargon. I always kick myself when... I catch myself doing it when I fall into line and become a bit of a sheep. And conversely, I always admire so much when people have that ability to just choose the right word at the right time that has the ability to present 
an image in your head. It's it's often simple words that are just just right. You know, I hate mm. to admit it, and I've never given this man a compliment ever before in my life. But Tony Abbott has a way of saying words, whether you agree or not with his politics, he has a way of saying the right word at the right time that just presents his case. I remember, and this is just one example where I have grudgingly admired his ability to do that. I remember him saying something about the carbon tax will clobber the economy. Now, clobber is a word that we all know the meaning of, but it's not a word that you hear very often. So there is no cliche about it. It almost catches your attention by its simpleness and it's easy, it's ease to understand. What do you think about that? Do you think that's an awful example? I'm kind of relieved you went with Tony Abbott rather than some other politician that's in the news a lot these days. So yeah, first part there, well done. Um, (laughs) And But yeah, you're right. Like politicians are absolute experts at loaded language. So Mm. yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. And will purposely use those words that do make you feel something straight away. They evoke a Mm. visceral reaction Mm. within you. And yeah, clobber. Gosh, you really just think about the pain that a clobbering is going to bring. Yeah. Yeah. But they can be used really effectively as well. I mean, that is used effectively, but Mm. uh, say inside organizations. For good. (laughs) For good. That's that's the answer. Yeah. And, but I think it's to be, yeah, careful to be really mindful of how they are being used because otherwise you do end up with that. it can be a bit too much and it and it can mm. feel disingenuous. It's still at the end of the mm. day, I think with words, it has to be authentic and it has to feel like they are words that you would actually say. When you hear a politician use a word like that that has cut through, whether it's true or not, I always wonder, have they had uh, this big you know, $10,000 testing regime where they've got a whole bunch of focus groups in and spent heaps of money on it to work out what exactly is the right word to say in that phrase to get that message across? Because their reputation as being so ingenuous is so appalling that it comes with that question. But if you were to hear someone in the workplace use that word just off the cuff, or something as powerful as that, it would be quite impressive. All right, now you asked me what I liked. Now, I'm going to try not to take over here because I have a tendency to do that, but there's a few others I really liked. One is curiosity. I did a whole podcast on the concept of curiosity, and it's your first. It's the first chapter in your book when you get into giving suggestions and strategies, and it's just so powerful. We all know how poor the lack of curiosity is. And we have a world leader right now who is famous for lacking curiosity, for not wanting to understand the other side or any side or anything or any person. But the people, those amongst us who have genuine curiosity for everything are fabulous communicators, not the least for which it's because they're willing to ask questions and they don't come Mm. to a conversation or a written piece of communication thinking they have to have all the answers, but understanding that there's a lot of value in asking the right questions and having the the right type of ponderings. Uh, And they're just the most delightful people when you encounter them, aren't they? You just Mm, get into the best conversations. And yeah, I mean, curiosity, it can, we write about in the book, it it can change the relationships that you have with people. Um, Mm. We were just recently over in Dubai, actually, and visiting my brother-in-law and his business. And one of his employees had on the wall a little 
um, curiosity motivational poster and it said, you can't be angry and curious at the same time. And yeah. I remember just going, oh, that's just so true, isn't it? If, yeah, if more people right. would embrace curiosity rather than you know, getting up in arms or, or angry and, and just coming at that, I wonder why that's happening like that. Then I think our relationships would be a whole lot stronger because of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's so many great things about curiosity. And I think marketing and advertising have been exploiting our curiosity. Yeah. They've been exploiting what happens when we do have that gap between what it is that we know and what we want to know. And that whole curiosity gap, they've been exploiting that for years. Um, most mm. recently is the whole clickbait thing that you would have yes. seen, you know, the what happens next will astound you and, and you can't yes. help but, but click on it. Yes. That's it used for evil, but um, yes. there's been some great examples of, of organizations that we've been working with who have used curiosity to really engage their people and, and prime for learning. Like that's the most powerful bit of curiosity. It's so cool that we can find out a little bit of something and then, you know, personally ourselves we can want to go and and find out more and that's taking a lot of the work away from the manager or the leader who's been tasked with okay people need to build capability here or they need to develop their skills in this area you can use curiosity to make that happen or autonomously you told the story in your book about someone who was charged with getting an organization interested and keen to come along to the yearly kind of leadership get together and mm. the way they did it was to drop some teaser videos about the location that the meeting was going to be held and some interesting facts about the local area. Just 40-second videos, one a week, five weeks out from the meeting. And it wasn't until the very last video that they got some actual logistics and things that they needed to bring. The type of thing that you would expect would be upfront in the communication. There was a real building of curiosity and one of your other principles, which was also anticipation. And I just like that. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. And and again, mm. we've been hit with teasers all the way along. That's what those awful shows are based on. You know, <laughs> things like The Bachelor and Married at First Sight. They they leave you hanging at the end of an ad. And of course I don't watch those, but I see it when my wife has it on. It's not me. But uh, they they are again using that same emotion. But it's nice to know that organizations can be doing the same thing. Just building a little bit mm. of anticipation and curiosity around key messages that they want to put across. And it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to think about the times mm. in our organizations where we can use that rather than just sending out one email that says all of the who, what, when, where, and why, just tease them a little and tease them a little with a, a short video that's free to make mm. on your iPhone. It's a great concept. All right, enough about what I think, Jen. I'm much more <laughs> interested in what you think. What are your favorites? There's there's 11 concepts there. You must have some favorites or is it like asking someone to pick their favorite child? Yeah, it's definitely a bit like that. I think, I mean, the other thing about which we've kind of touched on with with words and even a little bit on um, curiosity and anticipation and, and talking about that case study of, um, so that was actually PepsiCo. I feel like I can say it on air because in the book, too many legal ramifications, but on air, PepsiCo. So yeah, they, yes. they're cis. No one's it was this. <laughs> it's fine. So every two years they have their EHS get together where 100, 100 leaders from all over the globe fly into the same place. So major investment to bring people together mm. and their engagement factor from that particular event hadn't been very high in previous years. And so 
I was chatting to the lovely Jasmine who was there at the time and um, she's like, what can we do about it? And I'm like, all right, we'll send through what you've got. And it came through and it was called the systems meeting um, on such and such <laughs> a day. <Brilliant> title. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, there's a quick win. <laughs> why don't we? Why don't we <laughs> jargon, why don't jargon we... <laughs> alert. You just said quick win. Ah, yep. Damn, gosh. So gotcha. just to go back to, to jargon again, at Jackson, <laughs> we actually have a jargon. So it's a jar, oh, yeah, jargon, mm. and then if somebody does jargon, you have to write an odd post-it note, you put it in, and then it's public shaming at the end of the quarter who's said the most jargon words. I win every like time. It. Yeah. Um, oh, great. But back Sorry, to Jasmine. I interrupted and the, your fabulous story, yes. <laughs> anyway, back to Jasmine and the systems meeting. So that got changed and it was called a summit, which immediately you know gives a, a different idea about what's going to happen. It's, it's grand. And they called mm. it the, yeah, the better, bolder, clearer, stronger summit. And then, as you mentioned, those videos tied into each one of those themes, talking about potatoes and pot stills and kissing Blarney stones and all sorts of fabulous things. Because mm, it was in Ireland, we- just to clarify. Yes, thanks for that. Might be um, important. <laughs> Good information. Yeah, and so that one, that one project used you know naming, which is one of the strategies. Definitely thought about what the words used: curiosity and anticipation. So that brings me to my next favorite strategy, which would have to be visual. And I mean, for us, you know, Jackson has its roots firmly planted in the visual arena. We started out as a design agency and and have really grown from there. So, I mean, there's just so many good reasons to be more visual in your communication. It helps us literally get on the same page. It aids mm. recall comprehension, simplifies the complex, increases our – attracts directs attention, increases our recall – Oh, there's just so many good things about it. You know, even why, why why do we shy away from it so much? Why are people far more likely to put together ten slides of twelve font dot points and present <laughs> that to me in a meeting than put together a couple of really cool visuals and then tell me a story about it? Why do we do that? Why why are we so bad at it? If we we all know this intuitively, a picture tells a thousand words. Yeah, I don't. I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that. Again, harking back to our our school days, we often got told you are an artist or you're not an artist, and mm. and that hangs over. And for yeah. our education system, that is firmly on the you know the maths and the sciences to get your OP to get the right right placement at university. You didn't do the arts because you knew that even if you got straight A's in that, you weren't going to get a decent mark. So mm. yeah, I think that's there's definitely a bit of training in the old head there that we're not artists and therefore we get scared about going into that realm when I think we've got to stop thinking about that and it's it's more just about good communication. And the other thing is it is actually a little bit more work and people are lazy. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, like to just yeah, yeah. bang it out as easy as possible. But my challenge to everyone yeah. is that the work isn't done unless it's communicated and that there's been somebody else on the end of that communication that has received it, understood it, and acknowledged it. Um, yeah. So if it means getting yeah, visual, communication then- is two way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you just getting it out, and you saying, "Well, I've done my job. I said it. I showed it to you." That's <laughs> not communication. You're only taking on part of the responsibility. Hey, Jen, yeah. I was getting my coffee this morning, and I was waiting and looking out the window. And this lady who was sitting at the coffee shop, I could see her laptop, full blown, could see everything on it. And she was obviously preparing for a presentation and she was going through this deck of slides 
and she had the cliche. It was as if she was there to annoy me. She had 10 or so slides that were just dot points, 14 font at most, and every screen was full of slides. It was full of mistakes. It had headings that had were a question without a question mark. She had used the word learnings, which drives me crazy. And I felt like coming to this lady and saying, delete it and start again, because that is a train wreck. But I didn't do that because I, it's not my place, and I thought it would come across as quite rude and might shatter her confidence. But if you are someone listening to this <laughs> and you have 10 slides full of dot points and you know you should be more visual, but you just don't know where to start, what's your advice for them? I just have this image of you harassing this poor woman who's, <laughs> who's late with her presentation yes, and, and exactly. you know, trying to do the best she can and you're just like, in the bin, put it in the bin. Yeah, delete <laughs> um, that rubbish. And I, I can see the company logo on it as well. So I've got all the, all the goss on that company. She wasn't very discreet and it was awful. Oh, God. Oh, can I just rage against the old company logo on an internal PowerPoint presentation as well, like taking up yeah. valuable real estate? Like, yeah. if your employees don't know where they're working, you've got bigger problems <laughs> than the bloody logo on the PowerPoint slide. Anyway, yeah. back to the- that actually how goes do you- back to what you were saying before, this, the sloppiness of having the same expectations for internal comms as for external facing comms. Yeah. It's just uh, easy to honestly, have the same rules. Nothing gets my blood up quicker than having internal comms through the brand book at like a, an awesome leader, a pioneering leader who's daring to do something different and yes. then suddenly they're quibbling over the right color blue or whether yes. the font is, yes. you know, Calibri yes. or Arial or something. Yeah. Um, yes. they're, saying, like, they're saying don't be interesting, just do it by the book. Yeah. And the guidelines, like it's called guidelines, not laws. So, yeah. you know, anyway, don't. Get me off my soapbox before we go someplace. I'll offend everybody. Um, <laughs> well, you'll regret. What was the question? So I was asking you about advice for that poor lady <laughs> who was at the coffee shop. She knows who she is. It was on George Street in Brisbane this morning. I won't tell you what date it yeah. is today. <laughs> nice. Look, I reckon the first thing is I think a lot of people feel like what they do is is super complex and it's beyond simplification. Ah, yep. And that you know, that people wouldn't understand if they simplify it. And I think yeah. you've just got to call bullshit on that because complexity isn't actually the issue in it all. It's confusion. So, you know, when you've got it's 12 not knowing what's bullet- important. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why it's it does come back to simplifying the complex in that you do have to start with, you know, sifting for relevance, what is important. And so for that 12 bullet points on a slide, is it that there's one point that is the most important and then you're going to talk to the other ones, but there's one image that's going to evoke that emotional response in your in the viewers of this amazing presentation that's going to get them cognitively prepared to hear that information that you're going to be giving them. And then it's really being like PowerPoint's not the issue. It's never the issue. That's purely just a tool to do the job. Mm. It's it's how we use yeah. it that's the, the, the problem. It's the way we abuse it. It's the way we abuse it. And so it's it's understanding that first and foremost, it was created as a visual aid for our presentation. So if it makes more sense to have a pile of notes with you, then have a pile of notes with you. If it makes more sense to have palm cards, then have palm cards. Um, you know, have your actual speaking points elsewhere and then use PowerPoint Not solely the for the screen. purpose of 
getting people to feel how you want them to feel because that's what the visual do. And that'll help all of that data sink in a whole lot faster. And that's right. You raise the most important point there is that most of the time when people create presentations like that, it's because they're actually doing it for themselves. It's not for the audience. Mm. It's for them as they're standing there speaking so they can remember Mm -hmm. what to say. So that's absolutely right. All right, Jen, Mm. we are very quickly running out of time. Can you give Mm. us your one last bestie of all of the advice that you've given in your book? Give us the one that we can do tomorrow that will change our lives. All right. So if you're a leader, a manager or a boss, whatever you're calling yourself, I think being aware of the language that you're using around your team can be the biggest game changer in how you're communicating as a human. I mean, obviously, language is the foundation for how we feel, how we influence, um, how we express our beliefs, our attitudes and our behaviours. And the one thing that you can do tomorrow differently is if you are doing this one thing now, I will hunt you down and end you, is if you're calling your employees staff. Like <laughs> my staff, mine, even, and I love the people who go, My staff, my you, as staff. a human being, you are mine. What are that they? So like, a sh- yeah, are they a shepherd's stick? Is it you know, yeah. like a staff yes. that you are banging into the ground, like Gandalf or something? Yeah. You know, they're people. I'm and, reading the Hobbit know- at the moment, <laughs> so you know exactly my, what it is. To you my shall five year not old, pop. exactly. <laughs> And so, yeah, having think about what are you calling your your team? What are you calling your people? Because mm. if we're calling them resources, they're going to feel like resources. That's something that can mm-hmm. be used up and thrown away or mm-hmm. swapped in and out. Are we mm-hmm. calling them staff, which is, again, giving a – there's a connotation of power at play there. And coming up with mm-hmm. a name that makes sense in your business, in your industry, that works for everyone. Well, what, do, what do we call them? That doesn't sound dicky. I call yeah, them because the mates. Of my, my- <laughs> My peeps, my mates. Co-conspirators, whatever you like. Yeah. I think team yeah. or people is is a really yeah. nice place to start. Yeah. Colleagues. How about colleagues? Yep. Colleagues, not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit dorky, but it, it's sort of safe and certainly doesn't have any connotations of I'm the boss and I own you. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. I think you can do better though. <laughs> yeah, probably can. <laughs> all right. That's a cool one. Now, this is, but this is how I want to finish. The, mm-hmm. Your last chapter is the beware, the excuses for mediocrity. So we've talked about a few. Your book is chock full of great ideas for being a better communicator, for being more colorful and less boring and more respectful and more effective. What are the things that are dragging us back to the pack that we must stay conscious of? Yeah. Okay. So the number one, we've spoken about it a bit already, is branding getting the brand book thrown at you, um, uh-huh. having a strategy yep. and Rules. play to to counter those arguments. I would recommend reading the chapter on habituation and also jumping onto our website and checking out our habituation video, which definitely takes the proverbial out of the internal communications departments that aren't on board with the new ways of thinking. They um, cop a bad or- rap in your book, I've got to say, internal comms, and <laughs> rightly so. They have crushed the dreams of many people trying to do things differently within an organization to get a bit of attention. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do like to pick a fight. Yep. Probably have my face on a few office kitchen dartboards around the country. Great way to win new business and return business <laughs> yeah. as a consultant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's well done, Jen. Another, I guess, nay slayer of awesomeness is um, the legal department and it's developing great relationships with them 
earlier rather than later to when things get have them gone wrong on board with what you're trying to do mm. and if you are trying to communicate in a different way then and depending on the industry and the company there's going to be greater risk involved in that so but what we're starting to see now is whole codes of conducts that are coming out in visual form wow. or you know and there's also two sides to it one is you can just go through the motions and and do the the legal version to keep legal happy but that doesn't necessarily have to be the way that it gets communicated. So you can have that one and then go stuff it in the back drawer that nobody ever looks at, but take out those key points that you need to get across and deliver it in a way that is going to make sense through the right channel with the right messages. What other things? Complexity. One um, more. One more. Or oh, okay, if I forgot one more. Fear probably then is the last one that, you know, it is when you are doing something different and you are trying to yeah. change the game, then yeah. – you know, nothing sends people into a panic like like a good old bit of change. So, arming yourself up and and ready to go and and know that when you are doing things differently and you are going to change the way your organisation's communicating, that it's going to be met with a little bit of a "What the hell are you doing here?" A, a, a um, backlash, and it's coming know, from people. Yeah. Don't yeah, that's that's such a great one to end on because it, it's true. We can we can know all of this stuff and we can learn about it through books like yours. But when it comes to actually executing it within an organization and knowing you're the only one who's ever done this, everyone else does it this other boring way, for you to stand out and look different, it takes a little bit of courage. And and there must be people who want to do things differently to get a bit of traction, to get some attention, to have a bit more effectiveness who are just scared to do it. That's a really nice way to end, Jen. Yeah, it is because it's when you do put it out there, there's going to be people that are going to go into the ask covering mode, the justification. Mm. And yeah, there's these amazing pioneers that are in every organization that are just waiting for that opportunity to do something. But yeah, get out there and give it a crack because the rewards are well and truly worth it. What a great way to end. Jen Jackson, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks for having me. What a blast. And that was Jen Jackson. She's so down to earth and practical, and I'm really drawn to her belief that by changing just a few fundamental things about the way we craft our messages, we can completely change the vibe of entire organizations. You know, of all the ideas we shared, it's that concept of throwing out the style guide for internal comms that sticks with me the strongest. I've been part of so many painful situations within large organizations where some well-meaning slave to the rules crushes the enjoyment, mangles the message of a piece of work because they want it to align with the style guide. Throw it out. Communicate for meaning, not for obedience. And there were a bunch of others. And there were a bunch of other ideas through that chat that were just as good. What appealed to you? What grabbed your attention? As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jen on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. 
connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.